Lausanne. Um, I'm a missionary with YWAM or Youth with a Mission, um, if you've heard of it, if you haven't. Um, it's just a missions organization. We um, Most of our work is done with young people, discipling them through schools and programs to go into the nations with the gospel, and it's a lot of fun. Um, most of what I do with them is in our Bible department, like Bible education, Bible literacy. It's great. I just get to read the Bible a lot, talk to people about the Bible a lot, um, learn stuff, teach people. It's, yeah, it's great. Works for me. It's the best thing you could not get paid to do. You could get not paid to do. Um, and it's great. And so I've been attending Valley for the last like year and a half. And something I've really loved is how much Valley does, um, yeah, love the word and has this commitment to like, uh, just following the text really faithfully and having really good conversation about it and really good, um, yeah, just Bible attitudes, which I love, which is rare, which is more rare than um, I think I'd like it to be. So um, I'm really excited to get asked to be a part of the Advent series this year with Valley, um, me and Maddie, the best, um, the best Maddie. Uh, I don't know if there's more Maddies here, but the best Maddie I know here, I think. <laughs> Gonna get in trouble with all the other ones. Um, yeah, Michael asked us to help prepare the Advent series as um, we prepare for baby Jesus. They're preparing for their very own baby, which will be happening right now, which is so exciting. Um, but yeah, we get to talk about Advent for the next four weeks with you guys. Um, and I'm, for one, am honored to be here. So thank you for being here too. Um, today's going to be a bit of a doozy. When I talked to Maddie, I was like, you know what I want to do is an overview of the whole Bible in 40 minutes, <laughs> or maybe 30, who knows. Um, and so that's what I'm gonna do today, bear with. It's gonna be great. It's me at myself. Because um, when you think of Advent, when you think of Christmas, there's these certain themes that come up all the time, and it's the words that you get at like a Target ornament. It's like joy, hope, peace, love, and they're all just like these single words that we get so familiar with and so accustomed to, and after a while, we sort of just stop reading them or like stop really thinking about them. Um, and so one of those words that I've just been thinking about and like meditating on, especially coming up into Advent, um, is hope. And so that's gonna be the word today, is hope. Um, and thinking about hope, there's, there's sort of two people in the world and we might describe them as hopeful or not hopeful, but we also might describe them as optimistic or pessimistic, <laughs> and sometimes they can be the same thing. Um, so typically, the sort of expression is like a, half, a glass half full or a glass half empty sort of person. Like, which, which are you, you know? Um, as Christians, sometimes we can feel like pessimism is kind of out of bounds. Like, we don't have, we can't be pessimistic because as a faith-professing Christian, we have, we literally believe that like the cosmic glass is half full, that there has been this, um, unconditional grace and love that conquers all and we just have to kind of buck the negative and not look at any of those things and just blindly be optimistic. Everything's gonna be fine all the time. Um, but optimisms, and I do believe those things. I do believe we've won the like, the cosmic glass is half full, Jesus does win, love conquers all. I'd hope that if I didn't believe that they wouldn't let me be up here talking to you. I do believe that, but sometimes I wrestle with this sort of blind optimism that's just like, it's just gonna be fine. You know, it feels like you just have to put your fingers in your ears and just be like, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. <laughs> and that doesn't quite cut it in our world. 
There's so many things that want to poke holes in that, that we actually need something bigger than optimism. We need something stronger than that. And that, I think, I believe, is hope um, that comes from God, from Jesus, from this faith. Um, it's something you can build your life on. It's something you can trust when all your circumstances are saying that um, it's not that good. You know, when the world's saying the glass is half empty, you can be like, you know what, I know. <laughs> um, it's not, it's better than that. So I studied critical theory in college and I loved it. Because um, in essence, critical thinking is just a little bit pessimistic. And I'm not inclined that way. My friends might tell you I am inclined that way, but I am a bit inclined that way. Um, critical theory is like, let's look at a hundred theories about the nature of something and how they're all slightly different and a little bit off and you can't really know anything about anything. And then I had to go like write an essay about an opinion like I wasn't allowed to have because you aren't allowed to know anything. Um, and I think that's, I love questions. I have so many questions about everything all the time. Um, and one of the things I love about the Bible is that it doesn't, I'd hesitate to say it gives you a ton of answers. Sometimes it just gives you more questions. Um, but it does have this amazing way of providing perspective and challenge and hope and taking your questions and actually inviting you into something even bigger than your first question was, if that makes sense. If that hasn't been your experience and you're just like, I got answers, tight, go you. <laughs> I, don't, I only get more questions. Um, it produces this faith if we live with it. And if we let ourselves um, read it and be immersed in it and transformed with it, um, it'll change our lives. But here's the thing. The difference between optimism, blind or otherwise, and hope is what I want to talk about. Christmas is kind of the time that I feel like can spotlight the optimists versus the pessimists, right? Because the optimists are those people who like the moment Halloween's over, it's Christmas music. And it's like the lights are up and everything is holly and also jolly and also joyful. And then there's the pessimists who are like glaring at them. And so just for fun, who's of Christmas music after Halloween person? Hands up, nice. Who's glaring at them as they do it? <laughs> That's me, I'm a glarer. I'm like, until like late November, don't come near me with a carol. I'm like, it's not time. If you overdo it, it's not special anymore. That's my opinion. Um, that's not my message, but it is my opinion. Um, but, but hope, right? Hope is different than those, those two things. So like optimism, pessimism, you're informed by what's around you, you're informed by your circumstances. Hope is something deeper. Um, and where does this hope come from? Spoiler, it's the whole Bible, all of it. Uh, it's all there. So yeah, told Maddie amb ambitiously, I'm gonna walk through the whole Old Testament right now. <laughs> um, and I am not optimistic, but hopeful that I can pull it off. Thank you. Because um, with Advent, right, and with Jesus is coming, Jesus is being born, like why is that a big deal? We're like, oh yeah, he's the Messiah, that's cool. Who is that? <laughs> why is that good news? Why, like what does it matter that he, we know now, like and as, as Christians, we're like, oh yeah, Jesus is great. But why was it exciting for them? Why is this the hope of the world? How do we know what the significance of all of these things are? The way Jesus was born, um, in the time he was, in the place he was, to the people he was, like why do all of those things matter? Um, and I think we get so much of that from the Old Testament, which is like the foundation of this story. So, and Jesus agrees with me, 
he told me. Um, but also in Matthew 5, 17 through 18, he says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, which refers to the whole Old Testament. He says, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So he's like, I've come to fulfill this story that's been being told for centuries. And we're like, awesome. But if we don't know what that story is, we can't fully like cheer it on, you know what I mean? Um, and so Jesus is like, this isn't a brand new story, but it is an ever relevant like continuation of the story that's been told for centuries. I'm the fulfillment of that story. You have to know it to know me. Um, and I love, like, in the, in the work I get to do with, with YWAM and in missions, I just get to walk people through the Old Testament all the time. And it's so fun, because I feel like if you grow up in church and you get all the Sunday school stories, you have this, like, bag of stories about, like, almost like fun little capers that, like, oh, there's some guy with a weird name gets into, like, a spot of trouble, and then God, like, helps him out. And then you're like, cool, sure. <laughs> but how, what do I do with all of those? Then we get into the Gospels and we're like, okay, this is me and Jesus and the epistles are about me, that's awesome. But the Old Testament becomes this bag of like stories. And if we don't put them together and piece them together and see how they link together, we don't actually get to see ourselves or Jesus in the light of all of it. Um, so it's something that I love doing. So I'm excited to do it right now. That's the end of my preface. Now we're gonna do it. Great. Um, in the beginning, in the beginning. Um, God calls order out of disorder. It's gonna be the, um, what's that website where you don't read the full book and you skim it? Spark Notes, it's gonna be that, right? Um, I encourage you to read the whole thing yourself. We'd be here for a very long time <laughs> if I did it. So in the beginning, God calls order out of disorder, right? We know that story. There's nothingness and darkness. There's somehow both nothingness and darkness and water, but nothingness, and it's fun, because it's poetry. Um, and there's chaos, and then with his voice and intention, God calls forth order. He's like, all right, now, there's light, and there's earth, and there's purpose, and the pinnacle of all of it is us, is the creation of humanity. And in that, we get this picture of what God's ideal always was. So in Genesis 1, 26 through 27, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So God just made the whole world and he's like, you know what, to save the best for last, those people, here we go, this is it. Um, and so he creates this world to share it and he shares it with us, his image bearers. He gives us this identity, that we are to bear his image and we are to rule, have dominion over the earth with him. Um, if God is king and creator, which is how he sort of sets himself up in this, um, in, in this creation, how does he intend to rule this world? He rules it through us, like through you, through me, through his images. Um, and we do that by ruling and stewarding the earth on his behalf. So this commission that we get on the very first page of the Bible is to fill the earth, have dominion over it, be fruitful, multiply, to harness all of the potential that God's created in the world through the animals and the resources um, and make it all real. It's par partnership and cooperation and it's harmony between us and it's God and it's God in his rightful place and it's us in our rightful place having dominion and it's great. Sounds awesome. If you're like into gardening, then when you read the beginning, you're like, awesome, let's go. If you're not into gardening, you're like, Ugh, 
so much dirt I gotta like work with. Um, but it is great, and it would have been great. Um, and it lasts for about two pages in the Bible. It's like two pages of it being awesome, and then it's like, um, In the Bible, what it does immediately gives us an account of how our purpose, that beautiful purpose from the beginning, got distorted, and how do we find ourselves in the situation that we're in now. So in Genesis 3, not very far in, <laughs> um, the sort of spiraling action of our story um, kind of comes to a head with the fall of mankind. Um, and it's here that humans break their relationship to God. Um, by doing what? If you got your Sunday school story, then you know. They took the fruit, not an apple. Um, and so it's sin, right? It's this, dis- this act of disobedience. God's like, hey, don't touch that tree. The snake rolls up and is like, what if you did? And they're like, what if we did? And then they do, and it's terrible. Um, and it's sin, and it's disobeying God, but it's more than that. There's something else happening in this moment. Um, the snake tempts the humans with a lie, and he says two things. He says, eat the fruit, and one, you'll become like God, and two, you'll, be no- you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. And there's that great irony that they were already like God. God already made them in his image, and the snake comes and starts to distort that of like, well, he's actually held something back from you. He's not made you in his image. You're not already like him. You need to do this other thing. Um, On his terms, they bear his image. And what the snake invites them to do is to create their own terms. That like knowing good and evil thing. When I was a kid, I was like, doesn't seem so bad. We're supposed to know stuff. That's all right. Um, You know, I would never say that to my Sunday school teacher because she was like, very bad thing. And I was like, sure, very bad. (laughs) But I don't understand. Knowing good and evil, the word knowing, I don't speak Hebrew, this is like the one word I know. Um, The Hebrew word is yada, and it means to know, and it refers to the kind of knowledge that comes from experience. Um, It's the type when you do something like, um, like if you burn your hand and then it's hot, and then you're like, oh, I have this experience now that informs what I know about that thing, that it's hot now, (laughs) Um, and it's painful, and you decide that it's bad. And you use your experience to inform you and you decide the worth or nature of that thing, if that makes sense. Um, The nuances of what's happening in the tree thing is that humans are now deciding, deciding to decide for themselves what is good and evil. They are gonna know, experience, decide the difference between good and evil for themselves. And in doing so, rejecting God is the one who decides that. They're gonna walk into their lives with this experience and, and use everything that they experience to make this discernment that they're actually not qualified to make. They actually, we don't know the difference between good and evil as it stands on like this cosmic level. Um, and every time that we decide, it's still, when you think about what sin is, it's still us looking at something or someone and saying, I know best. I know best what is good in this moment. I know what is good, mostly for me, because we're so <laughs> self-oriented and self-centered. Um, it's us deciding that I will act, believe, engage with this thing on my own terms and my own estimation of what's right and wrong, usually in opposition to God's, because he's holy, and we don't have that inherently. Um, so the very first, ca- and this is, what, this is what I think is happening um, at the fall, and then the very first casualty of this human rebellion against God is the breaking of relationship between the man and the woman that once they were unified in their purpose and in their call, and now with this um, seizing of sort of power away from God, it's, it's broken, and the story spirals, 
right? Their families torn apart by murder and there's violence. And then we get these tales of the first cities being built um, where violence like reigns and they're boasting about just how awful they are. Um, there's injustice and wickedness and God washes it clean with the flood, but it doesn't stop humanity from doing their thing. That's Genesis 1 through 11. There you go. Um, and it all uh, sort of culminates in this story about Babel, Babylon. Um, it's a story of people saying, we're gonna use all our technology, all of these things that God gave us to steward his good earth with, and we're gonna build this tower up to heaven. Um, and if the rebellion sort of began with humanity seizing independence from God, now they wanna to assemble together and like ascend to the realm of the gods and assert their own divine authority through all their technology and power. It's this big show off moment of like, God, you gave us these things to do this thing, but we're gonna use it to do this thing for ourselves and it's not good. Um, so God does the same thing as he did with them in the garden. He banishes them, scatters them. Um, again, when I was thinking about this, I was like, I grew up like bilingual, and I was always like, why does God, is our language is a bad thing? Like, would we not have different languages if, if it wasn't for Babel? That's just a question. I don't know the answer. But I remember being like, our language is okay. They are. I'm convinced of it now. <laughs> but I'm like seven, and I'm like, oh gosh, you know? You should, yeah, ask your kids if they have any questions about the stories that you're reading them, because they might be thinking stuff. Um, so one through 11 leaves us with this question, what is God gonna do? What hope is there for this world? These people just keep messing up and they keep not being a part of what God's doing. What's gonna happen? What hope is there for these people? Um, the scope sort of shifts in Genesis 12 uh, from this big kind of universal zoom out focus of like everybody to hone in on this one man and this one family. Who is it? Anybody? Abraham, yeah, nice. I, I'm used to like in a classroom, so usually I'll have like a discussion right about now, but we're not gonna have one, it's just me. Um, so yeah, Abraham, from whom the nation of Israel is gonna like come forth. And so in Genesis 12, we have some really amazing words because um, God just kind of rocks up to Abraham and he's like, hey, I got something to tell you. Um, so the Lord said to Abraham, this is Genesis 12, one through three. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so what do you think the big idea of this passage is, if you were to follow some repeated words? Blessing, great. I saw some like mouths move. <laughs> you can yell it if you want. Uh, yeah, blessing. So this is the big idea. But why, why this guy? Why bless him? What is God doing? What are we supposed to be like looking for here? And I think it's all summed up in that last line, right? In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In this moment, what are all the families of the earth doing, right? They've just, we've just come off Babel. They're all rebelling against God. They are ruining themselves. They're ruining God's world. What's happens, what happens with Abraham is God like setting in motion this long-term plan. And the long-term plan is to bless the nations. Which, this is just mad, right? Who does that sound like? Loving your enemies, blessing those who persecute you. Like this is Jesus' whole deal. This is, he's like, this is what I came to do, is to fulfill this plan that was set in motion so long ago. 
it's, yeah, it's just like, for me, it's always like when God and Jesus do the same thing, I'm like, oh, they're the same thing. That's so cool. It's like, yeah, it's great. Um, Jesus loves his creation. He loves his people and his world too much to abandon them to their own devices. And it begins this like long road to redemption, um, which is really the thrust of the rest of the Old Testament is just this story playing out, is God being like, I wanna bless those people so bad and they're gonna continuously reject me from doing that, but I'm gonna keep doing it. <laughs> I'm gonna keep showing up, I'm gonna keep making promises and keeping them. I'm, I'm here for the reconciliation, I'm here for the restoration. This is the hope of the world is that I will bring them back to myself. Myself, they're themselves, the Trinity. Um, and that's like three quarters of the Bible is just that story. Um, and there's like subplots and subplots, but we're doing the Spark Notes version. So Abraham's family ends up enslaved to an evil superpower, Egypt. You can watch the movie, it's good. Um, and then God rescues them mightily and extraordinarily. And there's that great scene in the Prince of Egypt where like the whales there. And I'm like, I don't think there was whales there, but there might've been and it's beautiful and Hans Zimmer just like went off on the soundtrack, it's good. Um, but the point of that story with the plagues and all of it is that God is actively like on a mission to defeat evil from among the nations. He wants to bless them, but if they're intent on rebellion, if they're intent on injustice, if they're intent on destroying God's good world, then he's like, I'm gonna defeat that evil inclination and I'm gonna show up and show these people that I am for them and with them. So he redeems uh, Israel, this nation, out of slavery, and he takes them to a place called Sinai, which mountain, um, and he enters into a covenant relationship, now not just with Abraham, so Abraham got that first promise. Now that promise is being extended to the whole nation of Israel, and this is what he asks them to do. In Exodus 19, four through five, he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all nations. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is like what's on offer for, um, for the nation. And I used to not understand that God like came down and laid it out. He was like, this is what I want to do by blessing the nations, and this is how I want you guys to do it. Are you on board? And they were like, yeah. I used to not really think they had a choice, but they had a choice, and they chose yes. They were like, God, that sounds tight. Let's, like, let's do that together. Um, and this is, this is uh, the bones of it. He's asking them to be a nation of priests. Priests function as, a go, as like a go-between, right? When pe between people and God. He's calling this nation to be that go-between between God and the other nations who don't know him. He wants them to be a holy nation to fully represent him to others and that's how he's gonna bless the nations, right? Because the there's no greater blessing than knowing who God really is. That's what he wants Israel to do. He's like, I want you to make me known to these people who don't know me. And so how does that go? Terrible, absolutely terrible all the time. Uh, we see it go horribly wrong. They're redeemed out of slavery. They're given a new land, special covenant relationship, and they just replay the sin of Adam over and over and over again. They decide over and over again what is good, what is evil. More often than not, they pick evil and call it good. And it just, um, yeah, it's just this cycle of it all just going down the toilet. <laughs> um, what happens is that Israel actually ends up exiled out of the land that God gave them. Because he's like, I'm gonna put you here to be this holy nation. You're gonna live different. I'm gonna give you the law in like, to be holy, 
because you don't know how to do that yourselves. You guys are really bad at discerning what's holiness and what's not, so I'm gonna spell it out for you in the law so that you can do it. Not just for you, but so everyone can see you, and by seeing you, they would see me. God's like, I want people to know who I am. I want to restore them to this relationship. They can only do that if they know who I am, and Israel just does the worst job at doing that. And so they end up exiled out of the land, um, and they end up in Babylon, back to the nation. That was like the climax of humanity's rebellion, and they're in captivity, and we just walked from Genesis to like Jeremiah. Great job, everybody. Um, And the big question all the time is what's gonna happen? The things that we're doing aren't working, the things that um, the prophets are like, hey, come on guys, stop being the absolute worst. Um, And people are like, I can't hear you. I'm gonna go do something terrible again, I don't know. Um, We have this rebellious humanity and they're supposed to be priests with a special special commission and they just keep rebelling against God. And so in captivity they have these questions, like what is God going to do? Where are we at? What hope is there for us now? They have a lot of reasons to be very pessimistic about their situation, because all their circumstances are saying you messed up, like this is it. You've worked yourselves out of this promise, you've worked yourselves out of what God's trying to do. And you can just imagine the optimist that's in your life trying to find a silver lining in it, as they're like looking around at what they've done, and I just don't, as a self-professed, not optimist, I don't know how they could do it. But it wouldn't cut it to just have blind optimism. Like optimism is looking at your, again, your circumstances and your surroundings and being like, I can see how this could work out. And that just wasn't gonna be enough for the nation where they're at. So much has gone wrong and they've lost so much that blind optimism is just too empty. It's not strong enough for their situation. And this is where the like need for a proper real hope um, comes in. And so the prophets come into play. And these guys are speaking to the nations the whole time. There's a bunch of them. The ship is sinking, and the prophets are like, come on, stop it. (laughs) Like, just repent, stop the idolatry, stop uh, sacrificing your children, quit abusing the poor. Like, God wants to do this thing with you. Don't you want to do this thing? And they're like, sometimes they they sort of swing around. Most of the time they don't. Also, a spoiler. Um, And what the prophets start to do is they start to outline this hope that's gonna carry this nation through. They're like, these things are gonna happen. You are gonna go into exile. You're going to lose this land that God's promised you, but he's not done. He's not gonna be done, and he's working still for that restoration and reconciliation. And so they're outlining this hope. God's gonna renew the covenant. He's gonna send a king from the line of David. This is where it starts to become Christmassy, don't worry. a Messiah who's gonna lead Israel into true faithfulness. And we're like, hooray, a Messiah, what's that? Um, Messiah just means anointed one, and anointed means uh, like purposed, set apart, right? This Messiah had a job to do. And what is he gonna do? We're in Isaiah 9, we're gonna be there for a little bit, so if you wanna turn there, you can. If not, it's gonna be up there. Um, but Isaiah is a prophet to the people during the time when Assyria, which is a big old superpower, has just rocked up and like decimated the northern kingdom. They've just wiped them out, taken all these people away, um, like brutal. Like Assyria was the worst. Um, and Isaiah is a prophet and he's speaking to the southern kingdom that still exists around this time. And they're watching this happen to the north and they're like, 
eesh, <laughs> quaking in their boots just a little bit. Um, and so we open in Isaiah 9, and he's speaking to them, and he says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, which is up in the north. Um, but in the latter times, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Isaiah is warning the people in the south, like they've also strayed away from the covenant. Like uh, Israel being taken by the north was a consequence of continuous just rebellion against God. They were just like, we don't want God as our king. And God was like, I really would love to be your king if you would let me. And they're like, we don't want anything to do with you. Um, they've grasped that decision-making of good and evil and just done a terrible job with it. And they've defined their own nation um, as op in opposition to God. And God has let this happen, right? He's brought them into contempt. Um, with rebellion, God usually lets, gives people what they're asking for. He's like, if you don't want me as king over you, I, I, I don't have to be. You know, I'll let you actually choose the things you're choosing um, and the consequences that come with it. So they've rejected him as king over them and he's let them, but is that the last word in this, right? In the former time, he brought them into contempt, but in the latter time, um, he's, not, it's, <laughs> he's made glorious the way of the sea. There's something else that he's doing. Sin and destruction never get the last word with God, ever. Um, his purpose is always and will always be to bless and restore and heal. It's always gonna win out. And that's the hope that Isaiah is beginning to define in this passage. In the latter days, he's gonna honor this region. Well, how's he gonna do that? What's that gonna look like? And he tells us in this passage what it's gonna look like for God to actually turn this around. So in verse two, he says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, for them the light has, on them the light has shone. Assyria's come in and they've devastated the land and it feels like the lights have been turned off. Um, Tim Mackey from the Bible Project uses this image of the lights being turned off, like, like imagine there's just nothing. Um, and God's starting to describe what it will look like when he turns them back on. The people in the darkness have these questions. Where is God? Where are the promises to Abraham? Like, what, what hope do we have? We've, we've worked ourselves into this situation by rejecting God. Um, and God says he's, he'll turn the lights back on, but what does that mean? When is that gonna happen? What's it gonna look like when he does? And Isaiah tells them, he says in verse three, uh, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy, they will rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. It's harvest time, right? This is when the work's been done. You have sowed and weeded and waited and watered and you've tend, tended to your garden and the land and there's this joy that comes with the harvest. You've had patience and patience and patience and hope and hope and hope that what you've believed for and invested in, that it'll come to pass and then it does. Like I don't, I've never harvested anything, but I imagine that if you've spent a whole lot of time working on something and waiting for it, and really putting, like, you have to hope. You put it in the ground, I think, and you put dirt over it, I think, and you water it and you wait, and you're like, this, I have this expectation of what will happen, and then when it actually does, like, grow, and you get to, like, eat it, that must be awesome. Yeah, <laughs> I should get into gardening. This would be a stronger uh, example. Um, but then you, then you have it, and they're glad. 
right? There's joy at the harvest and they are glad when they divide the spoil. They are reaping the rewards. When God turns the lights on, there will be this joy of this patience that they've had and this thing that they've invested and worked for and believed in. Um, The harvest is when all of that comes to fruition and they actually get to um, divide the spoil between them. In verse four, it says, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. The joy that they're gonna have in this day when God turns lights back on, when the harvest comes, is gonna be like they had at the day of Midian, which is referring to the story of Gideon um, from their history. So they are probably more familiar with it than we are. Um, Gideon had this little band of like 300 people, with like clay pots and, por- and torches, and somehow they overcame this army of like tens of thousands. Um, and just like that rescue that was against all odds, against all of their circumstances, against everything that told them that, hey, there's no way you're gonna win, there's no way there's gonna be success for you. God moved on that day and they won and they were defeated. They, and they weren't defeated, Midian was defeated. Um, just like that, Yahweh's gonna rescue them from their oppressors now. It'll be just as miraculous and wonderful as it is on that day. Verse five says, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. When God turns the lights on all of the boots and clothes and utensils of war that have blood on them from all this destruction will be no more. They won't even, they won't even be a memory. Their like presence won't even be felt amongst you. So far will it be removed when God moves. And here's the money, here's the Christmas verse, the fridge magnet. When God turns the lights on for us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. His name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so a child will be born, we get this promise, and his birth will be the symbol of these lights being turned back on. It will mean the joy of the harvest, the freedom from slavery, the peace from the war, this royal child who's gonna bear the government on his shoulders. He's gonna carry the rule and the reign and the kingdom and he's gonna be called all of these like amazing symbolic names. Um, Old Testament names are typically like speaking to some kind of character, trait or destiny. Um, and so that's what's happening here. This is what Jesus is gonna be, who he's gonna be. All of these names speak to some element of his character and they're really cool. So number one, wonderful counselor, um, not a therapist, which you know he will listen to you um, and process all your stuff, but <laughs> it's actually referring here more to strategy. Like if you've ever seen a movie with like a war council and they have that big table and they have like chess pieces and those big like sticks and they like scoot them around and they're like, all right, we're gonna come in from this side and they're never gonna see it coming like that kind of war strategy, that's the kind of counseling that's being referred to here, that um, like, like a military or a political planning, Jesus, like the baby's gonna be a king, like he's gonna be king over this, um, this world. He's gonna be a good king, a wise king, who strategizes and accomplishes these great and wondrous acts of salvation. Like he's gonna be really good at it. He's gonna strategize his way into exactly what it's gonna take to restore this world and bring people back. Um, That's awesome, it's like very cool. Um, So what else is he called? He's called Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Who else is called that, right? Yahweh, that they know. They know him as Mighty God and Everlasting Father. 
And Isaiah is imagining that this child is gonna be the very embodiment of Yahweh, of all of his redeeming purposes, all of the intentions that we've just very quickly traced through this whole story, all of Israel's history, all that God has been trying to do and doing and promising to do among them, Jesus is gonna be exactly that. He's gonna be the embodiment of all of those things. And that child is gonna be here with us, born here, God himself. I, I just had this moment like three years ago when I was reading the Gospels. And I've like, I grew up in church and so I was always like aware of God and I just was like, I was such a Sunday school kid. I was like stickers for days. I was like, I'm gonna learn all my memory verses. I'm gonna win. I'm gonna win being a Christian. Um, and, but in my head I was always like, okay, Yahweh, God, Old Testament God, like he's cool. He does all the cool stuff. Like, part in the Red Sea, he's showing up in thunder, he's like plagues, you know, big acts of wonder, like all of this amazing, big, huge stuff. And I was like, and then Jesus was like, like kind of one of us, um, you know, not, not so different. And I had this moment three years ago when I was reading the gospels and I had just been in a school with YWAM where we just spent like 10 weeks in the Old Testament, just, just reading the Old Testament, the stuff that God, God's doing, these amazing big stories. And then we were in Luke, and I was reading it, and I was like, Jesus is saying all the same stuff as God. And it was just this click moment that took me, I was like 24 or something. Um, It took me so long, just in that moment, to see Jesus as like, some of you might be like, yeah, obviously. But like, Jesus is God. Like, that's mad, you know? It's just that all of the stuff, like all this bigness and wonder and huge and miracles that God is doing, Jesus is that, and he's sitting at a table with his friends. Like, that's what happened in the incarnation. Like, God of, like, on the mountain and stuff came and sat with us and is here, you know? So Jesus, he'll be the Prince of Peace as he ushers in what the world has been longing for. You know, it's restoration to that creation design, that first thing, that harmony with God. He's gonna bring about our true purpose, our true identity as God's co-rulers. And this last part in verse seven just reads like a big crescendo, this like sweeping definition of the hope, really, that's being found in this child. So of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen? (laughs) You know, this is what is gonna happen when the lights come back on. This is the hope that is born with this child that we're even now celebrating and excited for and have this anticipation for. These people have been allowed to walk in the darkness because of their rejection of God and their ways because of that seizing of good and evil for themselves, but there's a time coming when the kingdom of God's reign is gonna come with justice and with righteousness and with true goodness and it'll reign forever. And that's all starting with the birth of Jesus. Um, And so to close, as we step into this Advent season, we wait with hope, right? We wait with this hope. Over the next couple weeks, uh, Maddie and I will share more about these promises and what this hope looks like and what it means for us. But I wanted to start this week um, and leave you with tonight just the story of God's story, which is our story, because it's our hope. Um, 
in this Christmas season, wherever you're at, if you're feeling very optimistic and you're like, all my circumstances are telling me that life is great, um, praise the Lord. He's good. That's awesome. That amazing. Don't let anyone poke holes in that. Um, but if you're feeling maybe a little more wary, maybe closer to the pessimistic side and things feel still a little dark and a little unsure and maybe you're not 100% on the fact that the lights have been turned back on, um, I want to encourage you in this hope that does go beyond your circumstances, um, that is bigger than that, that Jesus is good and he's here, he's been born, we get to live in that amazing like post-Jesus being born life, um, and know that he's, work, he's been working towards your restoration all his days, and he's not done. Um, and this is what I wanna pray for us as we end, um, that we would allow ourselves to see ourselves in this story, that we would make it our own, um, that we'd believe in this hope that Jesus gives us, not only in this sort of Christmas season when we're talking about it, but through everything that we do, knowing that God's always been doing this huge thing, and we've always been in the center of it. So, yeah, let's pray. Um, Yeah, thank you. Father, we thank you. Um, We thank you for your goodness, for your faithfulness, for your mercy, for your grace, for your kindness, and for your peace. We thank you for your design, for your world, and that we're such a part of it. We thank you for your promises to us that give us the hope of a kingdom, um, a world where we get to rejoice in the harvest of our waiting, where we are free from the things that seek to enslave us and where there is peace from the wars that we feel like we have to fight. As we wait in anticipation in this Advent season, would you speak to us of your son? Jesus, would we see you in new ways, um, in brighter ways, would we trust you and would we trust in the hope that you bring? Help us to surrender our circumstances to the promise of your light and forgive us when we fail and invite us to try again through your grace. We ask that you would show us your story and speak to us about the part that you have for us to play. God, we thank you for who you are and who you've made us to be. We love you and we trust you. Amen.